Hello again. Welcome back to Beer Books, the podcast hosted by yours truly, Daisy Ray. And don't forget me, April Berry. And me, Dean Wrigley. We are all about appreciating indie authors. We have interviews and reviews, writing and reading you flash fiction stories, and best of all, getting authors noticed by their readers. This week is a flash fiction week, and April, Dean and myself have all written you a story around the writing prompt, Locked. Dean is going to read you his first, followed by April, and then yours truly. And we will have a discussion about what we think of those, and we will be frank and fabulous and honest about it. So we'll kick off with Dean. Locked. I pulled up a chair to the window, tucked the skirt of my dress under my thighs, and settled down to watch the strange-looking bird as it wandered across the patchy, snow-covered lawn. I had seen its brown plumage first, and had wondered what a duck was doing in my garden. But when it turned its head towards me, it was obviously not a duck. Whatever it was, it wasn't supposed to be here. I reached for my illustrated guide to British birds. I slowly thumbed through the pages, keeping an eye on the bird. This bird had a long, distinctive beak that it kept pushing into the thawing ground, pulling it out slightly every now and then so it could gobble up the insect larva it had caught. I settled on a page. The drawing on the page looked very similar to the bird on my lawn. The beak was long and the plumage an exact match. It was identified as being a woodcock. The description said it lives in woods and copses and and is nocturnal. Well, that didn't make any sense as it was in my garden at 10 o'clock in the morning. That bird isn't supposed to be here. I sipped my coffee and contemplated what had brought it here. The weather had been very cold for the past week and perhaps my lawn was the nearest place it could find where it was able to forage for a meal. The book said it had a call of thwick, but no mention was made of it having a fear of cats. It would need to have one if it hung around here for much longer. It wasn't supposed to be here. It wasn't supposed to be here. A bit like me, really. There are parts of me that have never belonged, and for too many years I hid it all inside. Now I see people pointing, and I hear them laughing at this ridiculous clown, dressed in his pinks and his purples, with a flamboyant hair, more Quinton Crisp than the of the dowdy old widower I'm supposed to be. But I refuse to be bullied and pigeonholed. I'm happy now being the person I always wanted to be, too long in the tooth to remain locked in a life I never asked for. It was 20 years ago that my darling wife finally succumbed to the cancer that had ravaged through her body. During her final years, there was little time for my selfish gender identity trials. The final diagnosis of her cancer was terminal, hit me hardest realising I would be the one left behind. She needed someone to be brave with her, but I knew I'd always been a coward. At 60 years old, my whole life had been a lie. I was not supposed to be here. To me, fatherhood was just motherhood by a different name, and it came easy to me. With the birth of our third child, I questioned my wife on how I'd managed to father three children. She smiled and simply said, love found a way. Our daughter brought me particular pleasure as I threw myself into dressing her in the frilly dresses I had adored so much as a confused child. 
When my eldest son was on the way, my parents were thrilled and grateful they were finally getting the grandchild they had longed for. Unfortunately, neither of my parents got to meet him. Despite my libido difficulties, my wife and I adored each other. She would make summer dresses with elasticated waistbands that looked really pretty when viewed in the full-length mirror in our bedroom. She made me feel so special. With her, I was where I belonged. We had exchanged dreams to the refrain of the Beatles song, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. She was the first girl I had dated, much to everyone's surprise. It was 1965. Even though I flourished in my trade, I found it difficult to make friends. I had nothing in common with any of my male colleagues, and most of my female colleagues just saw me as being a nice boy, and that I wasn't interested in them. I'd been apprenticed and employed as a journalist in a local newspaper after my graduation that followed three years of solid study and virtually no social life. Throughout my confused adolescence, I fought desperately hard with so many gender demons. The discovery of any sort of sexual desire went on unfulfilled. The enrolments into the Boy Scouts didn't bring the male bonding my parents had hoped for. The boxing gloves Santa had brought to toughen me up lay unused in a box in the attic. I wasn't meant to be here. I was the child who dressed the dollies. I was jealous they were dressed in the clothes I wanted to wear. I was meant to be a girl. I've always been a girl. But I'm locked in a boy's body. I was born into this and all the world wanted me to be. Wow. Very poignant, that. Quite intense, isn't it? Yeah. I'm assuming there's no personal experience in there, Dean. No. It's, um, I did a lot of reading on um, in the past week about gender dysphoria. Yeah. And uh, okay. I wanted to write about it. I think it makes it all the more poignant that it's not personal and you've gone yeah. to the trouble of researching it and looking into something. It's opened my eyes definitely to different people, how, mm. how other people are, let's say. I've got to say it was very relatable because, I mean, I, I do know a few people that are transsexual, have changed genders, and that's the kind of things that they do say, that they're locked in a, a body that's not theirs. Yeah. yeah. Funny that, because I wrote Relatable as well on my notes while I was listening to that. And the being sort of invisible and not fitting in anywhere, that's another thing that you touched upon in your story. And really, all of the family knew, didn't they, from the parents that were trying to get you to man up, as it were, or your lead character, yeah. to the wife that knew all along but loved you anyway which was lovely. I think that was such a special relationship mm. to have. Really touching. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite sad. Yeah. But it's possibly of its time where, you know, nowadays it doesn't carry or shouldn't carry any stigma. But in the sort of 70s and 80s, it was something that was frowned upon. There was no legislation to protect people. And so you had to really hide it away, keep it locked away. We've definitely come a long way as a society, I feel. don't think we've come far enough, to be honest. No, I, I, I agree with you there, April, definitely. I think there's an awful lot that we could do that we don't do. We've got quite serious, really, haven't we, in a very short space of time there. It's that kind of story, though, isn't it? It, it is, It makes yeah. you think. It makes you look inside yourself and, and look at your values, maybe, even. Yeah, it makes me 
look at people that you know are saying the right things, but not meaning what they say. Because I also know some people like that, that, you know, say the right things, say what society expects them to say, but actually that's not what they think. Yeah. And that's that saddens me, that somebody thinks they've got the right to judge somebody else's life. There are so many yeah. people that feel like they can judge, though, and they do judge. Yeah, they do. I think the most poignant line in the whole story, for me anyway, it wasn't supposed to be here, a bit like me, really. Yeah. That spoke volumes to me. That part is really relatable in some sad way for lots of reasons. Oh, we, we all have our insecurities. Even the most brash person, I'm sure, is brash because they have insecurities. And it's yes. just their way of, yeah. of getting out of that. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. actually. I really like that, Dean. Thank you very much. That was uh, that was very poignant. One of the things I did want to talk about, because I was talking to Dean earlier before we came on the podcast, and this is the second draft of this story, is it? Yes. Maybe maybe even third. It's yeah. the second you've seen, yeah. Yes, yeah, the second I've seen, yeah. <laughs> maybe third then. And we wanted to talk a little bit around editing, because although flash fiction is short stories and our flash fiction is only 500 to 1,000 words, it's not as easy as you would think trying to fit a beginning, a middle and an end of a whole story into such a compact amount of words. And it can be quite difficult. So I often go back and have a rewrite and Dean has today. I have as well this week because I was going to write something. I know we talked on one of the earlier podcasts about what I might write for the prompt locked. And I've completely and utterly changed my mind. And then I wrote something and then I looked at it earlier on today and I thought, no, I don't quite like that. So I'll put a little bit more in and changed a little bit. So it, it is something. And I do wonder sometimes if you could just continue editing until you edited the whole meaning out of the story. That's quite a good point. I wonder if you do do that. If people have done that, or edit it so much, they've changed the meaning. So in terms of your editing then, Dean, what types of things were you doing? Well... Daisy contacted me this morning asking me whether I'd... Because I'd sent the, um, the story in on for, for Wednesday for the um, deadline. And over the last couple of days, I've been thinking about it, thinking it's not really good enough. I like the first part of it, and but the second part of it is okay in patches, and I'm not really sure of it. And, uh, and Daisy yeah. contacted me this morning and, and asked me whether I'd completed my editing, my revising. And um, I'd said, I said to her that I wasn't sure... I'd, I was really happy with it and whether I should go ahead with it. Um, so she said, well, would you like to edit it? And she, she had a read of it and she read it to a friend of hers. And they both came back with suggestions for me. And I thought, well, it, I read it through again myself and thought, well, it ha it's not that far away. And I had enough words to play with. So I thought, let's go for it. So at about 11 o'clock this morning, I just sat down and got back into the zone, let's say. <laughs> uh, you thought the first half was your strong half and the second half you were a bit unsure of. But when yeah. I read it, I really liked the second half more than the first half. Okay. So it's about perspective as well. It's your story. You have to edit it until you are happy to put that out into the world. But from other people's perspectives, it might not be the case. But you're never going to know, really. There's always going to be somebody that likes something different to you. Yeah, I, I didn't think I'd fully achieved what I'd set out to do. The second half of that story was was meant to start from sort of now and yeah. then work back in time to the very start of it all, which would have been when he, when the person was a child. Yeah. Okay, mm. so and it's to show that, that this isn't just a 
something that's happened in the last 20 years since his wife died. It's been there all his life. It's it's affected him. Uh, yeah, initially, I didn't think I'd got it, but I do now. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I've, I've got more to it, and, and it's it's definitely reads better. It feels better. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that you uh, that you stuck at it, Dean, and, and edited it because I thought it was really, really good, and and it did come across something that had been there since childhood, you know. So yes, I really liked it. Thank you very much. April, are you going to read us your story? I am. Yes. William was playing on his phone, prodding the screen manically, but he wasn't successful. Beaten again. He hated it when that happened. He threw the phone onto the settee in frustration, running his hands through his hair as if it would give him the inspiration he needed. However, the only thing running through his mind was that damn tune from last night, clouding his thought process, fighting for headspace with the raging headache from the cocktails and shots that William had downed last night. William rose from the settee and wandered into the kitchen. Maybe a sandwich and a cuppa would help with the hangover. As William was gathering together the ingredients for the sandwich, his mind wandered to last night. Ah, oh, last night, he thought, as the memories, well, what he could remember, they were so sweet, he'd never danced and laughed as much for a long time. William wondered if he'd dreamt most of it. He hoped not. Why did alcohol rob you of precious memories? It wasn't often that William went out, but he'd finished the latest game on his Xbox, so when he was invited on an impromptu Friday night out with his colleagues, he jumped at the chance. He remembered the meal in the pub. He was self-conscious eating with strangers, but he tried to overcome that, thinking about all the faux pas that his colleagues had made in the five years that he'd worked for the company. Someone would said to him, if he ever found himself in an awkward or nervous situation, imagine everyone naked or sat on the loo. William thought this was one step too far. He never wanted to picture most, if not all, of his colleagues without clothes. That was far too much. William also remembered talking to a guy at the bar when he ordered his meal, something completely out of the ordinary for him. Perhaps it was a night of firsts. William bumped into the guy at the next pub. His colleagues had decided to make a night of it. What the hell, he'd nothing better to do. And he became confident, more confident, with every drink. William invited the guy to tag along with them as they moved from bar to bar. It was a strange situation for William. He normally didn't have time for many people. Oh, he liked the people he worked with, but only really in a work situation. Billing accounts, who had a strange habit of snorting after he th after what he thought was a humorous statement. Linda in HR, always stopping by his desk. He knew she had more than a passing interest in, in him. She, though, wasn't his type. Not that William didn't like women, not just as a partner. Still played with the gaps in his memory, William finished up making the sandwich, wiped down the kitchen services, picked up his drinking sandwich and went back into the living room, sitting straight down on the phone he had abandoned earlier. William pulled it out from under him and switched his attention to the screen as he absent-mindedly ate his sandwich. William was becoming more desperate again, looking at the screen. He now started to stab at it frantically. You stupid idiot, he exclaimed out loud. Why did you do that? William was getting more and more frantic and frustrated as every second passed. The phone started to ring. Not the most pleasant ringtone, sweet but psycho, which just about summed up William's state of mind right now. He nearly dropped the phone in astonishment as he looked at the screen. Liam was the name he stared at as he swiped the screen to answer the phone. Hi William, I hope you didn't mind me ringing you. 
Of course not, said William, to the guy he had been talking to on Friday night. I'm so glad you did. I wanted to ring you earlier. However, I changed my passcode on my phone on the way home on Friday and I couldn't remember it. So my phone has been locked all day and I wasn't able to open it. So he was hungover. Yeah. Met Liam on Friday night. Yeah. When it, When is it that Liam's giving him a call back? The next Saturday. day. Yeah. But William was supposed to ring him, but he couldn't unlock his phone. What's interesting is William and Liam, which is the second half of William's name. Is it like, I don't know, is that a conscious thing? No, it wasn't, actually. It's, I think it's like you were talking earlier on, uh, before we actually started recording, about not being able to work out people's names and going into the graveyard to look at headstones to find names for stories, which I thought yeah, was quite sweet. thank you for sharing that. That's OK, I thought I would. <laughs> no, it never, it never came up at all. I don't know about this one. It's sort of monologue-ish. Yeah. That sort of style. Rather than a beginning, a middle and an end... It's more more of a monologue type thing. So you still get like the essence of a story in that he's quite shy. He doesn't like being in front of people. He has phobias about eating, sort of, having to think about people being naked. But then he does go out and he does meet somebody and gets as far as swapping numbers, which is quite good for somebody as shy as he seems to be. Mm. So there is like a progression in there. Was that the alcohol talking? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, well, well, m- many of us are different people when we drink. I think I should actually just stick to people breaking up, to be fair. You are quite good at relationship squabbles yeah. in your stories. Yeah, that's mostly because I've had so many squabbles in mine. Yeah. Well, it doesn't really say a lot for me because I tend to kill everybody off. <laughs> you intimated, really, that you found this one quite difficult and you weren't that happy with it. Why is yeah. that? I don't know, I just found it. Maybe because, like you've said, it's more of a monologue, so it's like somebody going through the day after the events, yeah, reflecting on, on what he did and why he did it, and then his idiotic behaviour, because he wasn't able to get his phone open because he was supposed to ring Liam, so he got no idea. Could he remember everything that actually happened? Maybe he thought he imagined meeting somebody now. Yeah, maybe. His drunken haze. So yeah, it was it was quite difficult for me. I just think I'm going to stick to bad relationships. They're better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, uh, one of the reasons I wrote my my story because was because I wanted to write something I knew nothing about, which was in, in not in my comfort zone. Yeah. So so that's why I did that. The first bit was in my comfort zone because I knew what I was on about them, but the second bit was was not me at all. So. As I say, I, I had to learn about that. I had to get to under, try and understand that sort of thing happening in somebody's life. So, uh, you know, you've got, you got to put, put yourself out sometimes, haven't you? Yeah. yeah you I do. think you both have to some degree. I mean, I, I really struggled to try and put myself into the mind of a sort of 20-something young man who yeah. lacked confidence and did think and, and did something completely and utterly out of the ordinary that he would never do. Yeah. You know, because in my mind's eye, William went to work. He'd come home, he'd play on his Xbox, he'd get his tea, he'd go to bed, he'd get up, and that would be his his cycle. Yeah, quite an introvert, really, then. Yeah. I do know people that don't like to eat in front of strangers or eat in front of people they don't really know very well. Yeah, I think that is quite a thing for a lot of people that have issues. 
strange old world, isn't it? We're exploring everything today. We seem to be, don't we? Yeah. So, what, <laughs> so, so what have we got left to explore with you then? What's what, uh, What have we got to look forward to? I will read you my story then. Marina took a deep breath and held back the tears long enough to pack a suitcase again for the third time in as many months. She was going to visit her mum for a few days while Ruby took some time out to sort out what it was she really wanted from their relationship. They seemed to be locked into this pattern of needing a break. It was always at the end of the month and each time it made Marina feel a little more insecure, dented her self-esteem and created a long weekend of comfort eating, binge drinking and the consequential self-loathing that inevitably followed. The first time it happened, she was devastated. She had thought they were so happy, but around a week before Ruby asked her to leave for a few days, she'd started finding fault with stupid little things really, like the way Marina dressed little digs about her weight or the people she talked to. Ruby then moved into the spare room, and Marina could hear muffled phone conversations late into the night. But if she asked about them, Ruby was adamant. She'd just been thinking out loud. That first time, when Ruby eventually called to say Marina could come back home, she was so relieved that whatever it was that Ruby needed to work through was over, she just accepted it and went home and let it go. When it happened again the following month, Marina wanted to talk about it when she went home, talk about what the issues were and see if they couldn't work through them and resolve them to strengthen their relationship. It made her unhappy to think that Ruby was so unhappy herself that she needed to be alone and Marina had had to leave home twice. But Ruby wrapped her arms around her and kissed her gently and assured her it wasn't necessary and they were just fine now. So Marina let it go. She wanted to believe her. If only that had been the case. The third time it happened, Marina was a lot less inclined to leave. She dug her heels in and told Ruby she loved her and surely they could talk this out together. Didn't they love one another enough to be open and honest in the name of saving their relationship? Ruby warned her that if she insisted on pushing her, it would turn into a row and they might not be able to come back from that. Marina did try one more time and Ruby turned on her and spat. Maybe I'd love you more if you weren't so fat. Now leave it alone and go to your mother's. Marina was stunned. The attack left her speechless. She left without another word. When the call came a few days later for Marina to go home, unlike previous times, there was no whoop of joy and she didn't rush out the door to go home. Instead, her mum gently asked her, Are you sure you want to go back, Marina? You seem so unhappy. And don't think I haven't noticed that you've barely touched any food the whole time you've been here this time. I love you, darling. I just want you to be happy. I know you do, Mum. I love you too, but I have to try. Marina and her mum hugged one another and Marina left to go home. Marina sat in a car on the way home, wishing emotional breakdowns burned calories and her tears were actually just little globules of fat running out of her eyes to be gone forever. She could cry herself thin and desirable. She had been locked into this cycle of perpetual fatness and loveless misery for months now. 
No wonder Ruby struggled so much to love her. Just then, Clive's name popped up on her mobile phone and Marina smiled to see her best friend was calling her. She was always happy to be distracted by him, so she hit the answer button and his voice floated through the car stereo on hands-free. Hello, you gorgeous creature, you. I thought I'd give you a call and check up on you. Marina laughed, despite herself. Hi, yourself. What are you up to? Well, I've just left yours, actually. I thought I'd bring you round that Stephen King book you want to borrow. But it was just an excuse to come over for a gossip, really. It's been ages. Marina's smile faded as he continued. Thing is, and I hate to be telling you this over the phone, but I'd never forgive myself if I didn't warn you. What is it, Clive? You know you can tell me anything. Okay. When I knocked on your door earlier, Roland answered it. Well, he is Ruby's boss. What's wrong? Are you worried a house call means she's getting fired? If only that were the case. I'm sorry, Marina. He was in his underwear, and I could see Ruby scurrying around behind him trying to get her clothes on. Oh. Well, what can we say? Is that another one that's going to be buried in the next story? Yeah, she'll be dead. <laughs> but that'll be Ruby six foot under. That's why she's been to the graveyard looking at gravestones. <laughs> yeah, maybe so I could use one as a description. Wouldn't it have made more sense for Ruby to say she were going somewhere rather than chuck Marina out? Maybe, but maybe she was just far too selfish. Or the boss was married, so... Cheaper than um, a hotel. Yeah. And the other thing as well is Marina can't really have had that much self-esteem if she were blaming herself for Ruby's moods. I don't think she had any at all. Not really. I think Ruby used that. So was that your intention when you wrote that for that to come across? I think so. I think Marina, in my mind's eye, she's lovely. She worries about herself. She worries about her weight. She worries about what she looks like. And Ruby knows this. So if there's one thing you're going to pick on to get your point across or to get your own way, you're going to put a low blow in, aren't you? Doesn't everybody, really, if they're really, really honest with themselves, worry about something about themselves, whether it's the way they look or how tall they are or how short they are or how fat they are? Or, yeah. You know, absolutely everybody. And even those narcissistic individuals that think they're perfect, actually they don't, deep down. No. I think there is something in everybody that they're unhappy with, or not necessarily even unhappy, just something that they might want to change or better. Yeah. And I think if somebody is mean enough and narcissistic enough, it won't take them long to pick up on what that thing is and use it to their advantage. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's where that story went. Mm, quite thought-provoking, really. I kind of left it open at the end, and a bit like Dean, this changed this story, because originally... It was a woman. Ruby just had another girlfriend. But then I thought, well, nah. I was just putting her back in the closet to see how that would feel. So it, I don't know why it changed, really. Either one would have had the same sort of outcome. But does Marina turn the car back around and go to her mum's? Does Marina go home and confront them? Does she go home and chuck out Ruby? So I've just sort of left it open-ended and whatever you feel is the right ending would be what happens next. Yeah. I'd probably make her go back to confront Ruby. Mm. Yeah, Ruby is a bit of a schmuck. Yeah. Don't like her at all, not really. Which is unfortunate because she's named after my dog and I love my dog. <laughs> yeah, but Marina's named after my cat and I love my cat and I would expect my cat to have more dignity. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we just blame Roland then? 
Yeah, we can just blame Roland. It's it's an odd dilemma, that. I know. Yeah, that seems to be a forte. Stick to Rudolph killing off Santa. You've just never got beyond that, have you? No, never. <laughs> Live with it. It was a story. It was fiction. Santa's still real. For those that are well-behaved, which doesn't include you, so it's not really your issue. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Before we go into what's happening next week, we'd like to say an absolutely huge thank you to Dean for joining us and co-hosting with us and for reading his story to us. Thank you, Dean. Yes, thank you very much, Dean. That was most enjoyable. Glad to have your company. You're welcome on the podcast anytime. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've got some plans for the uh, for the next fast fiction stories, um, so hopefully I can read out one of those for you. Oh, brilliant. We yeah. like the sound of that. That would be great. <laughs> as much as I love these flash fiction episodes and I love all the storytelling, what have we got coming up next week? Right, well, next week uh, we've got an interview with Hal Markovich, who spent decades as a journalist and then he turned his talents to writing fiction and wrote a book called Painting the White House. So Hal's going to be chatting about where the idea came from, what inspired this, what inspired him to start writing as well um, after the journalism. And he's going to be reading a snippet from the book for us. How exciting. And I'm really looking forward to it. The book is so quirky. Yes, it is. All the chapters being named after the paint colours that he uses in each of the rooms. I thought that was a clever twist. Yeah, me too. I, I like the book as well. But anyway, we don't want to be giving too much away. No, um, we definitely don't. No. It's interesting and it's intriguing and it's quirky. Definitely looking forward to that. See you next week, guys. Take care. If you've read a book by an indie author that you've really enjoyed, email the title across to us at contactus at barebooks.co.uk. And if we read it, we will discuss it on the podcast. Excellent. If you happen to be an indie author and would like us to add your book to our reading list, maybe even come and talk about it on the podcast, send your suggestions to submissions at barebooks.co.uk. And if you fancy a go at writing flash fiction and want the chance to be published in our flash fiction anthology for 2021, pop onto our social media for the full list of writing prompts for this season and also the word count at Bear Books Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at Bear Books Pod 1 on Twitter. Thanks to Simon Strong for the musical interludes. You can Instagram him at dadnap.mp3. Stay safe. Until next time. Thank you.